Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Good to see each one of you in here, and some of you have slipped in during the songs. That was great. Welcome to you online as well, those of you who are joining us through the live stream. 1 Peter chapter 5. Well, there was once a very hard-working over-shepherd, chief shepherd. He spent 24 hours a day, seven days a week, caring for the sheep, protecting the sheep, leading the sheep to good pastures, and he spent a lot of time with these sheep. And so one week he decided he was going to get one of his under-shepherds to come and, and care for that flock of sheep for that week. And so he had the under-shepherd come and he introduced them to the sheep, and he uh, gave him instructions and what to do. And before he left, he said, oh, one last thing. This, do not forget this. Remember, one thing you need to do every night is to count the sheep. Don't forget to, to count the sheep and, and round them up into the sheepfold. So at the end of that week, the over-shepherd came back, and he saw the sheep, and they were, they were scrawny. They that looked like they hadn't eaten very much. They weren't really, really, really taken care of well. He was very disappointed in the under-shepherd. He says, well, what were you doing this week? What happened? Said, did, you do, did you follow my instructions? So he said to the under-shepherd, he says, get, get all the sheep in the sheepfold. Get them in here. Count them and round them up in here. So the under-shepherd did that. He, he brought them all into the sheepfold. And he said, okay, to the under-shepherd, what, what's the number? How many do we have here? How many did you count? He says, I counted 100. The under-shepherd says, I only have 97. Where did you get 100? And he says, well, you told me to, to bring the sheep in and then round them up. And so I did. I counted them and rounded up. <laughs> so there you go. This is my joke for the morning. Some of you are still trying to get it. Unfortunately, there are under-shepherds who maybe have that kind of discernment or wisdom, unfortunately, under the under-shepherd Christ. Hopefully that's not the case with the guy standing up here, although sometimes I do miss things. In the New Testament and in 1 Peter, what we see is Jesus Christ is this chief shepherd, this over-shepherd, and he has a flock, those are the ones for whom he has died, and he has a flock, and he appoints under-shepherds, elders, to care for his flock. And in, in this time, this would not have been an unfamiliar thing to them. In fact, think about it this way. Job, in the Old Testament, Job, he had 14,000 sheep. And if you remember King Solomon, in one day, he, at the um, time of the temple being dedicated, he sacrificed 120,000 sheep. So there were sheep everywhere on the hills around them. Okay, I mean, just imagine these hills around us filled with sheep. And that's what the picture is. You have, these, you have these, an over-shepherd, who, a chief shepherd who owns all the sheep, and then he appoints these under-shepherds to take care of these certain uh, portions. That's what you see here in the New Testament. Jesus is this over-shepherd. He came, he died, as, as Norm said. He sacrificed his life for the sheep. He gave up himself to be a sacrifice to save them. And he calls them and... and saves them, and then he portions his flock into smaller groups, and he appoints elders to serve as 
as over, uh, under shepherds to care for the souls of his sheep. So what First Peter is, is the letter to these, these little groups of sheep in places like Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. And in verses 1 through 4 here of chapter 5, he's writing to these under shepherds and he's giving them instructions. So we saw last week, we saw really we only got past the first point and we're going to finish the whole thing here today. We looked at the elders' role, the attitude of humility they are to have, and then we're going to look at the very end at the elders' expectation for the reward of glory. I really believe this text, I said this the last two weeks, I'm going to just put it in front of you again. I believe this text is teaching this, that those who fulfill their God-appointed role with the attitude of humility will be exalted with future glory. And so you can see this pattern he has here in this text. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Would you stand with me as we read God's word? I'll read aloud as you follow along. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Let's pray. Father, I pray this word, this text will fall on us like a, like a rain, like a snow that waters our hearts and causes it to grow in faith. And so Lord, do this work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The primary job of an elder, of a pastor, of a deacon, same office, is to shepherd God's people. Look down in chapter 5, verse 1. He says, So I exhort the elders among you. It's a local church here. And then look at verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And the word shepherd, again, that is the only imperative you find here in this text addressed to the elders. Therefore, I think shepherding is the primary job of the elders. The shepherd souls. And then verses 2 and 3, there are two participles that describe how elders are to shepherd. You see the first one in verse 2, he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Exercising oversight. So there's the first participle, and then that really gives the responsibility of the elders to this continual, daily, weekly practice of shepherding souls by having oversight. What does that mean? And last week we talked about there's many things that it can mean, 
But primarily the concern is to make sure that the sheep, the people of the church, are fed with God's word. That they are spiritually healthy with the, with the regular feeding and teaching of the word of God. And I didn't get to say this last week. I forgot to say it, actually. Maybe I ran out of time. But anyways, I want to comment on this. And that, that is that this does not mean that every elder must have as their primary gift the gift of teaching and preaching. That doesn't necessarily mean it means needs to be their primary gift. All elders must be able to teach on some level. Norm just gave a short little message up here, so obviously he can do that. Thanks for that, by the way. It was a blessing in my heart. And all of them must exercise spiritual oversight to care for souls. But listen to what Paul wrote here in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So there's a sense where all the elders, they rule, they have oversight, spiritual oversight, but there, I do believe there are some that should be and can be dedicated to the preaching and teaching of God's word. Of course, Pastor Roger, that was him for 40 years, still doing it strong too, right? And he's still doing it, and I, that's, that's what I'm doing, it's one of my roles. All the elders at our church, they all have the ability to teach on some level, but they also have other gifts. Some of them have other gifts that actually enable the, the teaching and, and feeding of God's word. Some have the gifts of administration. Some have the gifts of evangelism, some discernment, some wisdom, some leadership, some exhortation, some faith. And, and all those are actually important to the shepherding of God's, God's church. So that's the, that's the first command we see, the, our first instruction there of what it means to shepherd. It means that we feed with the word. And then the, the second participle we see that explains what it looks like to shepherd is found in verse 3. In fact, actually, if you look in verse 3, you can see there's, there's two more participles. One is a negative, basically how not to shepherd the church. And the other is a positive. So first he says, not domineering over those in your charge. So this is the destructive way that some elders shepherd the church. Not domineering over those in your charge, but here's what you should do, but being examples to the flock. So I th what we see here is you see really these two roles of an elder. They shepherd by feeding with the word and they shepherd by leading with their lives. He leads with his life. And so you can see in verse number three there, he says, being, that's the present tense participle, an example, and that's a noun. And it really just means a copy, a pattern. It could speak of someone copying something out of a book or, or following a pattern for some kind of you know, dress or for an outfit or something. But I read a story by that D.L. Moody used to tell. He was a preacher in the late uh, part of the 18th, um, 1800s. And he said he witnessed a shepherd who was leading his sheep one time in Palestine. The shepherd had his flock of sheep and they went over some hills. And then he saw them come down into this ravine. And the shepherd was going to have the, the, the sheep cross the ravine. Well, there was a little creek, a little river flowing through that. And it wasn't very dangerous, wasn't very deep, wasn't very fast moving. But it was just enough that as all the sheep came to the edge of that, and the shepherd tried to get them to cross, that they didn't want to cross. They were all scared. And so the shepherd tried to convince them, come on, come on, you know, get in the water, you know, feel the water, splash a little bit on them, but they didn't want to do it. So what the shepherd did is he went to the edge of the river, and he jumped in the river, and he splashed across, went to the other side, and then he said, hey, come on over. And guess what happened? One by one, they went in the water, and they followed each other, and they followed the shepherd to the other side. I think that's the picture that, 
Peter is painting for us here. If you're a shepherd, you can't drag the sheep to the other side. You can't prod them like cattle. At least you can't do it and care for their souls at the same time. Sheep must be led. And listen to this. A shepherd leads with his life, with his life. Elders are church leaders who lead by example. Now, when I say the word leader, what do you think of? There are many positions of leadership. You have the leadership of an elder. If you're a husband, you're to lead your family, your wife. If you're a parent, a mom or dad, you are to lead your children. If you're a teacher, you're a leader in that classroom. We have all these different positions of leadership in our society. When we think of the word leader, what, what, what comes to your mind? Some people view leadership as a position that they can dominate people. I'm a leader, therefore I can tell people what to do. In fact, some people aspire to be a leader just because they want to be able to command people around. And that's what they think leadership is. And that's really the warning you see here in verse 3. He says, shepherding is not domineering over those in your charge. Yes, you have some in your charge. Yes, you have some authority. But you don't exercise your authority by dominating them. In fact, if you look at the word dominating in the Greek, it's actually two words put together. It's a combination of words. It's the verb form for lord, then kata, or over or down. It's literally overlording or downlording. So elders have authority, but they're not to exercise their authority by overlording, but actually to do it by leading by example. And I think right here, once again, Peter is reteaching the teachings of Jesus Christ. If you go back to the Gospels and you think about what Christ taught his disciples, you can remember that over and over Jesus taught them that they are to humble themselves and serve one another. Remember the last two weeks that Jesus was on his way, last week before Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem? And the disciples, they're on the way, they're arguing who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. In the disciples' mind, they thought, okay, When we have the kingdom, I'm going to be at the top. I'm going to dominate everyone. I get to tell everyone what to do. So I want to be the most important, even above these guys up here, so I can make sure I'm in that exalted position, so I can make sure I can, you know, be the big boss guy. Of course, Jesus is going to be up here, but, you know, I'll be right up there with them. And Jesus rebuked them. In fact, he says in Matthew chapter 20, he said, that's a worldly idea, guys. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them? It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And Jesus taught Peter and the disciples, but Peter at that moment, that leaders in God's kingdom lead through humility, not domination. Leaders in the kingdom of God, listen to this, leaders in the kingdom of God don't lead by trying to get to the top and beat everyone down. Kingdom leaders go to the bottom, and they lift everyone up. Kingdom leaders don't lead by getting to the top and beating everyone down. Kingdom leaders go to the bottom and lift everyone up. And that's what Jesus did. And that's why the night before he dies, he's with his disciples. Again, they're sitting around this table. They all want to be at the most important positions. Interesting enough, who is in the most important position there? Jesus put Judas next to him at the most important position which would be the last person you'd think of if you're on the other side of the cross. But the point is, is that they all wanted to be in these positions. They all wanted to be in this top position. They didn't want to go to the bottom and serve and definitely not wash each other's feet. But Jesus, what what does he do? He goes low in humility 
He does the lowliest thing you could possibly do in that room. He gets down on his knees, takes a basin of water, and he washes their feet. And Jesus said, this is the reason I'm doing this. I'm doing this to give you an example so that you should do as I have done for you. Jesus taught by example, and all the disciples at that table, they were to see that example and follow Christ down. Their hearts were lifted up in pride, and Jesus showed them what true ministry looked like. It's humility. I get concerned when I hear from people, men, uh, that want to be an elder uh, because maybe someone else wants them to, you know, mama wants me to, or my wife wants me to, or, or because they really aspire to that kind of position. They really want the title. Like, I, I can't wait to have that title, or I can't wait to have this authority. And honestly, that really concerns me because that is not at all the heart of, of a pastor, of an elder. People in our society, they're fighting to get to the top so they can push other people down. How many people in our world are fighting to be in places of leadership? But what leadership is, according to Jesus Christ, is going low. So you can lift others up and exalt Jesus Christ high. And there's a sense where all of us, all of us are in a position of some type of leadership. Even honestly, if you're a child or a teenager in here, you have opportunities to lead people. You have opportunities to shepherd people. Again, if you're a parent, you're shepherding people and little, little lambs, if you want to say, in your home in some way. In fact, one book I, I recommend to parents is called Shepherding a Child's Heart. So there's a sense where all of us have some type of shepherding groups that, that we are in and we are a part of. And it's important to remember that, yes, we should speak words like I'm doing now. We should speak words that shepherd people. But also remember that your life is also preaching something. And you're leading people with your life. Vicki is a member of our church. She's not here this morning. And I think she's listening on live stream. She's been taking care of her mom up at Lake Isabella. And I think about her testimony. I think it was about a year and a half ago. Should have probably checked on this. But about a year and a half ago, she came to Christ. Was baptized up here in our church. What's interesting about her testimony was that she saw another lady in her workplace who was a Christian. And this lady shepherded her with her life. There was something about her that she knew that was different. And as she began to talk to this lady, she rec- this Christian lady, she recognized this lady was going down a path and she wanted to follow that path. And that path led to Jesus Christ. And I think that's what you see here. It's this idea that we are all have, we're all influencing people, which actually leadership is influence. We're all influencing people. We have these shepherding groups that, that we are a part of and we are to lead with our words, but also with our life. I think in times when we talk about stuff like this, it's important for us parents to remember that the greatest influences in our kids' life will be us. You're the greatest influence upon your children. Your words, your responses, how you solve problems is the greatest teacher for the little lambs in your home. And so for any elder or any other leader, what preaches the loudest is the leadership of your example. Now this can cause some people to be pretenders, this can cause some people to try, to try to contrive something that's not there. And that's not what he's saying to do here. In fact, I would just say this, that if the Holy Spirit is absent from the elders here or from your life, it's going to be absent from those that you're shepherding and you're leading. You can't, you can't lead someone to a place that you have never gone. 
And I think that's why Peter, or sorry, that's, that's why Paul instructs Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 12. He says, let no one despise your youth, but set the example. You know what's interesting? I was, I was thinking about this verse. I was thinking how most young men think, how I've had times where I've thought, let no man despise your youth, but make sure they honor you in your position. That's what most people would think would come after that. Don't let anyone despise your youth. Make sure that you put your position up there. You shove it in their face and say, hey, I'm a pastor. You better respect me. But he doesn't say that, does he? He says, let no man despise your youth. But what? Set the believers. Set an example for the believers in speech. And that word right there for example is the same word you find in 1 Peter chapter 5. Be an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And again, he tells Titus, Pastor Titus, hey, Pastor Titus, same thing for you. Show yourself in all respects to be an example, a model. Again, same Greek word that you find in 1 Peter chapter 5 of good works. And in teaching, show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned. And interesting, again, here's a pastor and he's saying, listen, there's two things about your life that are very important. Your example and the ministry of the word. And so that's what the role of the elders is. Second, let's look at the attitude of humility. How are the elders to lead? Look at verse 2. He says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And then here you see these attitudes, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So in verse 2, we see four adverbs that explain how to shepherd with oversight. And in the context of this passage, I think what you see are two examples of the attitude of pride and two examples of the attitude of humility. So the first attitude of pride a pastor can be tempted with in regard to shepherding the people is to serve under compulsion, to serve under compulsion. This has the idea that you are doing ministry because you feel like you're obligated to do it in some way. This is a prideful heart. This is a prideful heart that thinks, I'm doing this because I have to. I'm doing this because I have to. And you say, well, how is that a prideful heart, Pastor Ben? Well, when you minister because you feel obligated, your greatest desire, your greatest desire is not to, uh, not to glorify God, but your greatest desire is to keep yourself exalted, a person who serves because he has to is serving for selfish reasons. He's, he's propped up himself on the throne of other people's opinions. So I have to do this because people will have this opinion of me if I don't. And so I got to stay up here on this throne. I got to exalt myself to this position up here. Or, or they have to keep themselves exalted on the throne of self-preservation. I have to preserve my life. I have to preserve this and the opinions of people. And so, so really what you see is this, this heart of pride behind that. Really, in the end of the day, it's all about himself. It's all about himself. Think about just in general in a, in a church ministry like this. There are ministries that are hidden that people don't see. I think about the ladies right now that are down in the nursery. Um, I think we have ladies down in the nursery right now. I don't know who that is. But, or other ministries like that where people, you know, sometimes you don't even think about those people. And, and sometimes in those kind of ministries and other ways we serve at the church, sometimes we can get in this mindset. It's like, I don't really like doing this. Or maybe I'm only doing this because I have to. And by the way, I don't think anyone's ever said that to me about, about that down there. I'm just giving an example. But think about that kind of mindset when you think, like, I'm doing this because I have to. I feel obligated. Really, you're, you're doing it because you, you are afraid of the opinions of other people coming against you. 
you don't want people to think ill of you, or maybe you're doing it because this is the way for people to view you in a certain way, and to to get out of it, to say, I don't want to do it, actually would cause people to have a negative view, so you got to stay in this position. Or think about this way for kids. If your mom tells you to clean your room, you know, and you go to clean your room, but you only do it because otherwise you're going to get punished. And by the way, parents, I think that is a good motivation <laughs> that you should give to your kids. The pain of disobedience should be something they feel. But if you, if you children and teenagers, if you go to clean your room because your mom is making you, then your motivation is all about you. You're just doing it to self-preserve, to not get in trouble, which really reveals your heart of pride. And so elders, we can fall into this trap as well. A pastor might rationalize in pride, if I don't do this, then people will think this about me, or I got to keep doing this because I don't want the other people to think this about me. We can do this as pastors. We can do this as volunteers. And just in all transparency, there are times when you're about to go visit someone in their home, or when you're about to have someone, and you're thinking to yourself, someone over maybe at my office or house, and you're thinking, I'm really tired right now. And I think they're going to make me tired. Or I think I'd rather have me time right now. And so I really don't want to do this. And there's this temptation that comes in that, that's to say, like, I'm only doing this because I have to, because I'm a pastor. Which is a terrible, prideful place to be. And really for myself, I recognize I have to come to the place, and I don't do this all the time, so don't think that I do this every time. But I have to come to the place where I, I have to repent of that. Like, Lord, this is terrible. I can't, am I serving you because I have to? This is terrible. I don't want to do this. I actually want to repent of that and have a heart of humility that serves because it's your will. It's because it's your will. And I want to follow your will. And so that's the second heart there. We see the heart of humility. It's contrasted with the heart of pride. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Willingly means to volunteer. The prideful heart says, I'm only doing this because I have to. The humble heart says, I'm doing this for the Lord. I'm doing this for the Lord. And so notice in verse uh, 2 there, verse 3, he says, elders are to serve, will, or verse 2, willingly as God would have you. Now let me just do a little footnote here. Now if you have a, a King James or a New King James or maybe another Bible version, you might Say, that's not in my version. I don't see that in there. Why is that? Well, remember, the New Testament was written in Greek. It was not written in English, contrary, contrary to some things you might read online. Okay? Apostle Paul did not have the King James. That was not true. He had a, they, they spoke in, in Greek. They wrote in Greek. Today, we have over 5,000 partial or complete manuscripts that give us absolute confidence that what we have right here is what these men wrote. We have confidence that That is true, and therefore we believe we have, under the inspiration of Scripture that they they wrote, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I should say, that we have the Word of God. Now, there are, though, some manuscripts where there is maybe a a letter left out or a word left out for for various reasons. I'm not going to get into that this morning. As God would have you, that phrase right there represents eight Greek letters, And there are some manuscripts where that is left out. Those eight letters are left out. But but really, as you look at all the text, like I said, 5,000 partial or complete manuscripts, really we come back to, or I should say, those who are experts in textual evidence, they come back and they say, no, actually this was originally written by Peter. Peter actually wrote that right there. And so the best textual evidence supports that that should be included in there. 
And let me just give another little footnote to that footnote. And that is, if you go on the internet and you read, which is not a great idea if you're going to study the Bible, but there are places that say, you know, the King James, and the New King James, but most of the King James, is good, and the NIV and things like the ESV is bad, because the King James keeps words in the Bible, but the NIV and ESV takes words out of the Bible. Well, this is an interesting part, because actually, it does the exact opposite here. The King James leaves out these words, and they have... And the ESV and, New, and NIV and some other versions actually include it. And so my point of saying that is, is that don't go to the internet to find out what the Bible, the textual evidence is and things like that. Um, don't believe everything you read in the internet about the Bible. That's for certain. Um, so anyways, all that to say is come back to this. We believe this is what actually was written by Peter as God would have you, which means according to God or according to God's will. So Peter is saying the elders are to serve voluntarily seeking to follow God's will. They willingly do God's will. In John chapter 4, we read Jesus. He's with a Samaritan woman. Remember, they're at the well. It's hot. They're in Samaria. They're in an unwelcome area, a hot area. It's the middle of the day. They're thirsty. The disciples go off to get some food. That's the most important thing to them. But Jesus sees this woman who has a spiritual need. And so he ministers to her. Here's a, a lost sheep, and here he is, the saving shepherd, and he comes to her and speaks to her about the truth. When the disciples come back, they're like talking about eating and what they're going to do next, and they're thinking about think, other things other than this lady and her need for Christ. And Jesus, he said this. He said, my food, my, my purpose here is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus saw this woman, this lost soul, as, as an important, valuable soul for him to minister to. And actually saw this as God's will for him. Food's important, and eating, and the next things in life he had to do were important. But the most important thing for him was what God had called him to, and he came here willingly to fulfill that. Every moment that Jesus was on earth, every moment he was here because he wanted to be here. In fact, even leading into his suffering and his death, he went to that cross because he wanted to go to that cross. Not because he wanted the pain, not because he wanted to take the punishment of sin and because he enjoyed the, the, the wrath of God, not of that at all. It's because he wanted to die in your place. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus didn't come because he was forced to. He came because he wanted to glorify his father. He came because he wanted to obey his father. And he suffered and died and rose again because he wanted to give you eternal life. And as Norm said this morning, if that doesn't, what, how did you say it? If that doesn't light your fire, then you're got some wet, I don't know, your wood is wet. But the point is, think about that. That should blow our minds. Jesus Christ volunteered to come into this world, to become flesh, to suffer and die and rise again because he wanted an eternal relationship with us. In church, we serve like Christ. We should serve like Christ, willingly, volunteering, say, I'm doing this because I want to obey my Father. I'm doing this because I want to glorify God. I'm doing this because I want to see people come to Christ. I'm doing this because I want to minister to souls. And I always want to take this opportunity that if you're a person that is in here or you're listening and, friend, you are, are without Christ, I want you to know 
that Jesus came to die for you. All of us should serve God's sheep with this willing heart that starts with the elders. The second prideful attitude that we find is the attitude of serving for shameful gain. This adverb here is a compound word again. It's gain that is dishonorable. Dishonorable gain. The idea here is that elders might be tempted to be motivated to do ministry for their own personal benefit. And so here's the prideful heart. The prideful heart of a shameful gain thinks, I am doing this ministry for how it benefits me. I am doing this ministry for how it benefits me. And let me just as a side note, the gain is not the problem. It's really dishonorable gain that is the problem. In other words, the Bible teaches it is right to compensate those who minister the word. Jesus sent out his disciples and he says, listen, you guys should pray for God to provide for you. Trust that he'll provide for you and he'll provide through the ministry that you are endeavoring to do. In other words, you should expect you're going to go into these homes. People are going to offer you food. You're going to have a place to stay. And that should come through your ministry. And that's okay. Why? Because Jesus said in Luke 10, 7, that the laborer deserves his wages. And again, we see this in 1 Timothy 5, 18. You shall not muzzle the ox when it treads up the grain. The laborer deserves his wages. And that's in context of an elder receiving some type of compensation. So compensation isn't the problem. So what's the problem here? It's It's... He's writing about someone or individuals who desire dishonorable gain. That is, that money would be a motivating factor in ministry for them. Or you could say it this way. An elder loves money, so he uses the ministry, he uses people to feed his greedy appetite. Money is an important resource in our world, isn't it? I mean, we can't survive without it. If you're going to go out to eat afterwards, you've got to have money. If you own a home... And you want to be able to live in that home, you got to pay with money. It's actually a very important thing. It's actually something that we should teach on in the, in the pulpit here. And when we come to those texts, we will teach on those. Jesus said that it's a great test for your love, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Look at your credit card statement, and you can see what you love on there. When you got your giving statement a couple weeks ago, that you can see, like, look at that, and look at what you other things you spend money on, you can see what you love. So it's an important, actually, test. It's actually something important for us to be able to present and say, you need to consider this in your life. We should steward the money that God has given to us. We should, we should consider what we're loving and how we're using our money to love God. But money should never be a motivating factor for any ministry and any pastor. Let me say it this way. We should pray for God to provide for the material parts of our ministry. We should pray for God to provide for the material parts of our ministry so we can continue the spiritual ministry. But we should never flip those around. We should never do the spiritual ministry for the purpose of getting more materially. And that's, there's an important order for that. We, we give financially because we want to see souls come to Christ. We give to missionaries overseas. We want to see souls for Christ coming to Christ over there. We want to have people shepherded here. We should pray for God to provide in that way for the purpose of ministering to those souls. But we should never do spiritual ministry for the purpose of getting more materially for ourselves or even for our church. And how do you know the difference? You're like, how do you discern the difference? Well, it all comes back to what you love, right? This is what, this is what Paul wrote in 
1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is the roots of all kinds of evil. Look at our society. Look at our, our officials and government. Look at individuals around. Follow the money, okay? And really, follow the money back to the heart. It's not that money's evil. It's that the love of money is evil. So it's like this. If you love God and you love people, you will give materially to minister to their souls. If you love God and you love people, you will give, we have boxes in the back and online, you will give to minister to souls. But if you love the material, if you love the money, you will use God, you will use souls to get more for yourself. And it comes from this heart that says, I'm, I'm in this right here for the benefit of me, for what lines my, my pockets, what makes my big account go bigger. And how do we see this within a church? Let me give you some thoughts people might have within a church. Sometimes elders might have within a church. Sometimes even spoken out loud. Could be, I should say. Here's one. That person makes a lot of money, so I want to be their friend. Right? That's a heart of, of, of pride that looks at people as a resource for themselves. I like to go to churches to build relationships so I can have connections for my business. That's a real motivation for a lot of people. This person or this group at the church are the givers, so we should listen to them. Let's do fundraisers. Let's raise money in this way for the church so the, Lord, so the church can have more money. As opposed to trusting the sacrificial giving of God's people, let's figure out how we can contrive more money from the, for the church so we can just stay afloat. If you want that done, go ask so-and-so so he can write a check and get it done. I don't give much to the church because I don't make as much money as that person does. And of course, if I made as much money as that person, I would give more. And all of those statements come from a heart that views church through the lens of the love of money. And as a church and as a pastor, we should not be motivated to do what we do, to say what we do, because we want some kind of financial gain. Because we remember this, all those nickels and dimes and dollars and whatever it is, they're all going to disappear someday, and they don't matter. In eternity, there's no such thing as exchanging money, okay? It's all temporal, and we look at what is eternal. And if a person loves God and loves people, he will give materially to souls. But if a person loves the material, he will use God and use souls to get more for himself. And so the prideful attitude is the attitude that says, I am doing ministry for how it benefits me. But the humble attitude says, I am doing ministry because I want to benefit others. And ultimately, I want to glorify God. Look down in the scripture there where he says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Eagerly carries the idea of passion, a strong desire to do something. It's really, again, one of these words that have, are made up of two words, pra, which means forward, and thumos, which means passion. And the idea is that you have a passion that moves you forward, a passion. And sometimes in the New Testament, that word is actually used of people who have a negative passion, like they're angry, and therefore they're moved forward by that. But here, this is a godly passion that moves us forward to minister to people. Paul used this word. In Romans chapter 1, verse 15, he says, So I am eager. I have this passion that's going to move me forward to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. I really want to come to Rome. Why? Because I want to see the sights and sounds, right? No. Like, because I think the weather's a little nicer in Rome. No, actually, that was going to be the place where he's going to die, right? 
Now, I want to go there because I want to preach the gospel. This is my heart's desire. And I think we see this in the life of Jesus over and over in the gospels. What do you see when Jesus sees people? When Jesus sees people, he sees people who are lost and they need a shepherd. Think about Mark chapter 6, verse 34. Jesus is with his disciples. They're in a boat. They're coming up on the Sea of Galilee Galilee to Capernaum there. And they see hundreds, if not thousands of people on the shore. And they're all wanting Jesus to do something for him. And honestly, if you're Jesus, you're probably thinking what? I think I'm going to turn the boat around and go the other way, right? That might be the temptation. But he actually was eager. And the Bible says this. It says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. He had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so therefore, what did he do? When he saw people, all these people lost and on their way to hell, all these people separated from their, the father and their relationship with the father, all these lost sheep, what did he say? He said, I have compassion. Like, I want to teach them the words of God. And therefore, he did just that. And we could go through story after story. Jesus sees this widow lady. Her son has died. And he sees the need. And what does he have in his heart? He has compassion. It moved him to do something about it. We see that we saw the crowds in Matthew 15, 32. And he says, I have, I have compassion on the crowd. In other words, Jesus was moved forward by the needs he saw around him. And most importantly, by the desire he had to fulfill his father's will and to glorify his father. And this is the heart that we should have as well. And then last, the elders are to expect the reward of future glory. Look at verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The chief shepherd is Jesus Christ. Again, as we've said in verse 4, Peter encourages the elders to look forward, to look forward to the appearing of Christ. The, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, what is this talking about? This is talking about the second coming of Jesus. And I believe within that, you have this, we're not going to get into the depths of this, but I believe that there's a first, a coming for his church. We call that the rapture. There's a coming for the church. And then there's a coming with his church. When every eye sees him and he comes up, comes and sets up his glorious kingdom. So at Christ's coming, the Bible says the elders will give an account for the ministry they have to the flock. I think it's important for us elders to remember that we will stand before Christ and we will give an account. I think it will be something like this. Did you feed my sheep? Were you vigilant over the souls of my sheep? Did you seek lost sheep? Did you guard the deposit of God's truth? Did you stand and watch for wolves? Did you love my people? And the accountability is intended to actually be a time of reward. It's a time of reward. Look down in verse 4. He says, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That word crown is not the word that you find for the king's crown. It's the idea of a wreath that's put on the head of an athletic competitor, an athletic champion. Last summer, we were supposed to have the Olympics. How many were sad about that? Were you sad about that? Hopefully this summer we'll have the Olympics. I think, right? In Japan, Lord willing. If not, they're hoping to do it in Florida, I think. But whatever. Let's not get into politics here. The point is, I love the Olympic Games. I like watching some of the you know, games online. And when, in the Greek athletic games, when there were winners, they would put this flowery wreath on the head of that champion. And of course, after a couple days and a couple weeks, that flowery wreath would fade and 
probably at some point thrown in the trash, who knows. Definitely when they died, probably was thrown away. But eventually it would wither and die. But here you see this crown of glory that does never, that never fades. It's, it's an eternal crown of glory. In other words, what an elder, and really we, we're, we can talk about this more, I think actually in two weeks I'm going to talk about this. Really all of us have the opportunity to experience some type of reward from Christ, some type of glory that he's going to give us. And for the elders, there's, there's something that Christ gets, gives them. It's an unfading crown of glory. As I said this morning, there, there are two things in this world that, that will last forever. One is your soul, and the second are those things that you do for Christ, or the glory that you receive for what you have done for the glory of God. And, and again, let's not, let's not get this wrong. It's not that I'm in heaven and I'm puffing my chest out. I'm like, look at all the things I've done. It's not that at all. It's that as I've lived my life for Christ and faith in Christ, for the glory of Christ, I go to heaven, and he says, hey, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And I take that. From, my, from the Lord, and I say, Lord, I only did it because you gave me the power. I only did it because you gave me the grace. I only did it because you saved me, and we fall down and worship him. But what's amazing is, there, again, as I said this morning at the beginning of our sermon, our service, there's some aspect of this that is actually eternal. And I don't really completely understand it, but I do believe there's some kind of glory or something that we are able to glorify God in a more magnificent way for the rest of eternity because of what we do on earth here. What we do on earth here in some way does affect our eternal destination. It doesn't affect if you're going to go to heaven or hell. Okay, don't get me wrong with that. We don't believe in work salvation. But our faith in Christ, our, our, doing, our living life for the glory of God does have an effect on our, our joy and enjoyment and, our, and the crown of glory that we receive in heaven. And again, you probably have a lot of questions in your mind, and frankly, I do too. But I accept it by faith that it actually means something with what we do on earth actually has an effect on our our eternal glory that we give to Christ and our eternal joy that we enjoy him with. So what is the conclusion here? What is the conclusion? Well, I I hope at the end of this uh, that you church would pray for our elders. I think you can sense the, the weight of responsibility I mean, frankly, who wants to stand up in front of people and say, follow my example? Really, right? Well, in the end of the day, I want you to know that it's actually follow Christ and follow me as I follow Christ, right? And so, same thing with all the elders. We're all fallen men. We're men who are saved by grace. And uh, and so, there's nothing in ourselves that should be exalted up. In fact, actually, that's what you see here. We're to lead with this humility, and hopefully that is a part of our life. So, Please pray for our elders in that way. Pray for yourself. We should all be following this example of Christ. There's a sense where we all have an example that we give to other people of Christ. And if the Holy Spirit has touched on something in your life this morning, I would encourage you during a time of quiet at the end here, I would encourage you to go to the Lord with that, to go in prayer, confess that to him, trust him and ask him for grace. And then, as I always like to conclude with, if you're in here without Christ, if you're a lost sheep, and you're wandering in this life without the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, I invite you to come. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. As you bow your head before the Lord, I want to give you an opportunity to pray to the Lord. 
If you are without Christ, you know, you can call upon him right now, as Norm said, you can call upon him right now and be saved. And I invite you to do that. And church, let's all pray to the Lord and ask him to work this text in our life. Father, how poisonous is the heart of pride. How alluring it is. How empty, though, in reality, it actually is. And actually so destructive. Save our elders. Save me, Lord, from this evil. From this evil temptation, this evil path, this this broad way that leads to destruction. Lord, help us, help our church to walk the narrow path of humility with Christ. May we not be living our life to put ourselves on top so we can beat everyone down. May we go low into the bottom so we can lift others up. I think even as we conclude our service here, there are people here who are needy. There are people here who need love and communication and conversations. And I pray that we will humble ourselves to talk to those who maybe we don't know or we can't remember their names. And I pray, Lord, that we will lift others up in that way. And most importantly, Lord, that our lives will be for the glory of God. Give us this eternal perspective that we have been meditating on here this morning. Lord, we need this perspective. Our world preaches that all the problems now, all the problems now, think of everything right now. But Lord, your word preaches, think about our eternal destiny. Think about the eternal existence that we have. And so I pray for those in this room or listening online and they are uncertain about their, their, their salvation. Or maybe they know They've been running from you. Lord, I pray because their soul needs Christ and for the glory of Christ, I pray that they will come to Christ. May they humble themselves today. And then Lord, for our church, make us, change us, transform us into the image of Jesus Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I thought since we're singing about the glory of God, we uh, we can end with...